Gag me with a spoon. Is a federal appeals court going to shut Trump the hell up or not? I'm Matt Robeson as the Balance of Power Roundtable, part of the Beyond Politics podcast, joined, as always, by the Annalator. This is going to stick, Alicia. It really is. I hope so. I like it. I like it. Our conservative commentator, analyst, and political consultant, Alicia Preston. And, of course, our former two-term Democratic U.S. Congressman Paul Hodes, joining us in the midst of some tech woes today from your wife's iPad, which is actually, it's great. Like the, your cover photo on Zoom was briefly Pego, which- She's uh, much prettier than you are. Delightful. No just- I, damning photo- with faint praise there, Annalator. She's photogenic. And I, on the other hand, as people can tell who are watching on video, have a face made for radio. Well, we're going to make our way through and we're going to talk a little bit about tech woes later in the show. Um, There are some interesting overlaps of tech, AI, social media, the AI apocalypse and politics. But let's start with the gag order. I mean, look, we don't have to make a meal of this. Tanya Chutkin, who's the judge overseeing the federal election interference case involving Donald Trump, had issued a limited gag order, basically saying, Donald Trump, please do not incite violence against court officers and witnesses. Like, just don't do that. And he has appealed, and it's gone to a a panel of federal judges. Uh, Oral arguments were yesterday, and they were, I have to say, actually kind of interesting. I found myself a little bit tempted to agree with Donald Trump's lawyer. And if you had that sentence on your bingo card, congratulations, because I think you are alone. The argument was basically, hey, you know, Donald Trump might find himself in a presidential debate against President Biden, and he might have to or want to talk about the testimony that was given against him. And he might want to say, Mike Pence is a raving lunatic and no one can believe anything that guy says. And he has to have a First Amendment right to do this. Do you guys find yourselves at all biting on this argument? Paul, you're the lawyer and you're shaking your head. So the answer is no. The gag order is a fairly limited gag order trying to protect court personnel and the administration of justice, also trying to deal with Trump's penchant for witness intimidation, either through himself or his goons or his attorneys. And the I listened to a good part of the oral argument yesterday. So the panel of judges are two Obama appointees and a Biden appointee. And there was it wasn't really a there wasn't any political questioning. It was really about how do we protect the administration of justice? And as far as I could tell, the Trump lawyer's argument was until there's an actual threat against somebody in this case, the gag order really shouldn't, there, there can be no gag order because they you haven't shown any reason to have a gag order. Now, this comes in the overall context of, of threats in other cases. It, it was just a lie that there was no threat in this case. And the purpose of a gag order is, as we say, prophylactic. It's designed to prevent harm from happening before it happens, not as not to clean it up after it happens. So with a guy like Trump, you have a legitimate worry. Yes, he retains his First Amendment rights to engage in spirited political debate. He can uh, say all the things he wants 
about politics. He just can't incite violence and make threats against court personnel or intimidate witnesses. What do you make of the scenario that they laid out that he might have to go into a debate with a card, a little index card, with a pre-printed statement from his lawyer to any question about the insurrection case? I mean, is that, because that would seem to be, I'm, I'm just going to devil's advocate this, that would seem to be a little weird at the very least that you can't comment on a major no, issue in the no, election. No, he doesn't need a card. He needs a brain. The poor, the, the guy has jello for brains at this point. And he's on, the problem with Trump is he's on autopilot. He's like a Pavlovian dog who simply spews hatred and bile instead of uh, any kind of rational or, or control or reasonable argument. So what he's got to do is stop short of intimidating witnesses and stop short of attacking court personnel. It doesn't mean that in a debate he can't have a engage in whatever spirited argument he wants to make. He can, you know, talk about his innocence. He can say, I mean, it's just it's a spe I think it's a specious argument. But Paul, how scrambled can his brains be when his doctor just put out a letter saying that he's in extraordinary mental condition and, by the way, physical condition as well? I mean, Alicia, I assume that your he's Trump like MASH poster he, that's up yeah. on your wall is a basically Rambo, Rambo yeah. Trump, right? Like that's he's a rom com yeah, he, hero. He's a fat lunatic. I don't know what the doctor's talking about, but look, here's where we are. Let me just say one last thing. He belongs on the cover of a rom-com with his studly looks, you know, like like stroking the heroin on some cover called, you know, Pumpkins Are Us. I don't know what, but he's like, he's he is so beautiful. He is so strongly beautiful. And his brain is so good. Nobody has a brain like Trump. It's a huge, anyway. it's a huge brain. You know, what's amazing as I'm listening to you guys talk is to think where we are in the United States of America in 2020, that we are having a discussion about whether the leading Republican for the president of the United States of America should be allowed to exercise his free speech and what limits those should have. That's what we're talking about. That's insane that we're at this point in the world. That's insane that this is where we are. And I don't know whether to laugh or cry. Now, I listened to and read some of the, you know, discussion from the gag order hearing, and my opinion is this. I, I'd love for a judge to be like, you're not allowed to speak, period. But <laughs> I know that's unconstitutional. I'd love to get the guy to just shut up. It is a difficult balance. But one of the judges, one of the female ones, made a good, presented a good example. What if, you know, the night before testifying, Donald Trump comes out and goes on social media and says, Mike Pence has one more day to do the right thing the day before Mike Pence is to testify at a trial. That can put him in danger. Donald Trump has put this man in danger. Donald Trump incited an insurrection where people had nooses and cages to and enchanted to kill Mike Pence. I don't know the law. I'll leave that to Paul and to the panel of judges. I think he has to have the right to free speech, but I think he also has to be limited so he can't incite violence against potential witnesses. So remember, this is a guy who's facing 91 criminal charges in very in various courts. Um, in my view, there is before he was indicted and enmeshed in the judicial in the criminal 
judicial system. And then there's after he was enmeshed in the criminal judicial, judicial system. I mean, we've never faced an, a, a, a situation where we had to balance First Amendment rights to, uh, to odious political speech with the administration of justice. You know, I mean, what Trump is after is to be able to say crazy, outrageous things that either intimidate witnesses and uh, change their testimony because they're afraid, or to be so outrageous that a judge extends the gag order deep more and more restrictively, and then he argues for a mistrial because the gag order was overly restrictive and he wasn't allowed to say X, Y, or Z. I mean, you know, I mean, it's not a dumb, it's not a, it's not dumb strategy on his part to be fighting everything every inch of the way. But it's a, I don't think it's an argument that he's going to win. I think that a limited uh, gag order, limited in scope that protects his First Amendment rights by any, I, I guess with any other candidate slash defendant would be pretty easy to follow. But Trump can't follow what anybody says. He doesn't want to and he won't. So if the gag order is upheld, he's going to, he'll be back in court. They're going to be dealing with this all the way through. I think it's worth examining Alicia's point about, wait, where are we? What is going on here? Because it's so clear to the three of us, and I'm sure to most of our audience, that this is an insane issue to be talking about. The fact that we have to debate, is there any way that we can restrain the former president of the United States from inciting violence against witnesses against him in a criminal trial for an insurrection and an attempt to have a coup and overthrow the results of a democratic election in America? We have gotten to this point. And it's so obvious, Trump has disqualified himself so many times over from not only ever holding public office, but walking free again. It's so inherently obvious to us, and it's so non-obvious to the public, and it's kind of staggering. And in that vein, Paul, you wanted to talk a little bit about the fact that young voters who are so reliably liberal-leaning Democratic Party voting seem to be kind of meh on the Joe Biden versus Donald Trump question. And actually, according to that New York Times Siena College poll of six battleground states that we talked about on this show a couple weeks ago, Joe Biden only has a one point lead among what should be his strongest group. I mean, that to me is kind of staggering, although I think that there are some arguments that maybe it's not that useful a result to, to think about. I mean, Alicia, what do you make of that aspect of this, that despite the very obvious 30,000 foot view here, let's not get lost in the trees, like just look at the forest here, right? Raging forest fire of Trump versus, you know, placid, lovely woodlands of Joe Biden. People are, are still like, eh, I could see it either way. Let's take a break. We'll be right back. Okay, leafless trees in the woods of Joe Biden, by the way. Look, he's not inspiring. He's 
too damn old. He shouldn't be running. And I do not know why your party didn't come forward and put someone else up, be it Gavin Newsom or someone else. The fact that there's even a shot for Donald Trump to win is blinding me because you guys wanted to have an 81 year old man run again for a four year term. It's stupid. You guys are idiots. No offense. Actually, straight up offense. It's stupid. Hey, wait, you <laughs> said you wanted said... to offend us. <laughs> that being said, I've been saying this all That's along. The I've been called. I, I don't buy the polls. I, I don't buy any of them. I think you gotta you have to take a deep dive into who is answering these polls. People answering the polls are people invested in some capacity. Young people are not invested right now. I've got a 19-year-old. Let me assure you, we talk every single day. The only time she's ever brought up presidential politics was yesterday because of at University of New Hampshire, there was this inappropriate protest where a swastika was written and that's the closest to politics that she's come up with because she cared about that they're not invested right now and so the only polls are the people who are and they aren't an accurate look at what's actually happening in the country there's no way donald trump is close well to there's the some support for this and, and i it's interesting i am very split in my mind on this because I've written before on alternate and raw story about how little I believe in the results of especially issue polling and more on that in a second. There are statistical reasons. There are methodological reasons. There are just plain logical reasons to not believe the results you're getting or to just understand that they are of very limited value. At the same time, I've never liked the argument, I don't believe the polls, because there are things that polls can do for you predictively, and I find a lot of those arguments to be very hand-wavy. It's like, eh, I don't believe the polls. It's like, well, I mean, they do actually, they correlate with results in elections, you know? I mean, there there is some value to that. And I think both things are probably true at the same time. In this case, Alicia, your argument, and you have made it many times on this show that you are concerned about differential response bias, okay? You are worried that the people who are answering the calls are highly motivated for one reason or another to answer those calls. And therefore, statistically, they do not represent the underlying population, right? And there is some evidence out there that is what's going on with young voters. I would refer people to Dan Cox, who has appeared as an expert on this show several times before. He's an excellent social scientist who is at the at AEI, the American Enterprise Institute. They're a right-leaning think tank. He does excellent work. It's apolitical. And essentially, he goes through that New York Times polling and says what you just said, which is that there's good reason to think that right now, the young people who are picking up the phone and willing to talk to pollsters, given the relative amount of disengagement from voters right now, are the ones who have an ax to grind. And that's going to either be a very pro-Trump ax or they're disaffected, they're angry about Joe Biden. They're in the Democratic Party tent, but they're angry about Joe Biden and they have an ax to grind and they're letting it out through their response to a pollster. So listen, I saw some support for that uh, yesterday. I mean, the famous Kornacki going through approve, disapprove. Wait, is uh, that like a fortune teller? Who's the famous Kornacki? I was in Karnak. Like, I was in the same place. Karnak. 
Anyway, Karnak. No, young people have no idea what we're talking about. Does they, do you got you guys know who Karnak is? I know who Karnak is. This is a Johnny Carson bit, okay? Where Johnny he Car- would dress up with a turban and he would, because he was supposed to be a fortune teller, I, I don't think that was meant to be like an ethnically biased thing. And he would hold it would an so envelope. not be allowed today. He'd get canceled. It wouldn't be. It wouldn't be. But it was meant to be a fortune teller of some kind. Someone back to what, back and he to would what? hold up an envelope to his head and predict what was in the envelope. The best one he ever did. He holds up the envelope, okay, and he says, what's inside is sis boom ba, okay? And Ed McMahon, his sidekick, says, okay, what's sis boom ba? And he opens the envelope, and the question is, what sound does an exploding sheep make? Okay, Paul, back to you. <laughs> so, so, exploding the sheep, here's what we see. First of all, the there there are two things. I really that, threw you off with that sis boom ba <laughs> thing, didn't I? <laughs> All I think about is a sheep all over my my screen. But putting right. aside that that delightful image of Biden as an exploding sheep, what you've got is there are two things that voters care about: one, the economy; two, the economy; three, the economy. Oh yeah, there's foreign policy, whether or not we're safe or not. But who cares? So first of all, on the economy, we, Biden has an enduring problem which is that Republicans get elected. They completely screw the pooch, including on the economy. Democrats come in to clean it up and get blamed for the mess. So Biden is getting blamed for all the mess that Trump created, whether it's pandemic, whether it's inflation, um, Biden gets the blame from too many voters about that. And on foreign policy, Democrats are splitting because the far left and young voters are upset about his support for Israel and the way he has tried to deal with a terrible situation in a nuanced way. And that may simply be, it may be temporary. We're a year out from, we're a year out from the election. And will voters come to realize the the good news uh, for, for Biden on the economy? Well, Democrats suck so bad at messaging that I I have my doubts whether or not uh, either the White House or Democrats in general can figure out how to reach people with a message about the economy. And, you know, the message about, well, yeah, things are bad, but they're getting better. Vote for me is a pretty tough message. I, the economy. I, but I want to challenge something in there. Because Nate Cohn, the New York Times polling director, who actually was overseeing that New York Times poll a couple of weeks ago, came out with a piece in his newsletter yesterday in which he said there is a crisis in issue polling. And I want to draw a distinction here that he's drawing that I've written about before, which is between issue polling and horse race polling. Most of the polling you see out there is horse race polling. Who is ahead between Preston and Hodes? It's always Preston is the answer, you know, and that kind of polling is what gets most of the focus. Is it the best hair poll? Is that what we're polling? Who has the better hair? Because I think I should win. Definitely win. You would definitely win. I could, and I can see, and and I'm not, and I'm not even gonna gonna continue filibustering about that or stay in office. I'm simply gonna concede and leave. <laughs> yes. Well, that makes you a rare bird in today's politics. Horse race polling is what the media likes to talk about because it's kind of interesting. It's like a sporting event. It used to be fun too before the issues involved were, you know, apocalyptic for America. But that's the kind of thing we hear about. That's also when you tend to hear and read about the crisis in polling. 
you tend to hear about it in that vein. Horse race polling. Huh, the polls were really wrong in 2020. Turns out that there's not actually that much of a crisis in horse race polling. It's always been kind of, you know, there's a confidence interval. There's a range of, of how confident pollsters are about these results. But it turns out that it's not that inaccurate. It's not that far off. It's pretty good. The bigger issue, the one that people don't focus on, is the kind of benign polling that fades into the background of our lives. We'll read about a survey that says percent of Americans say that the economy is the most important issue to them or whatever. And that's where Nate Cohn says there is a crisis because most of these assertions are not falsifiable. There's no way to go and check on them and see how true they are. And when he looks at the disconnect between the issue polling that the New York Times was doing before the 2022 midterms and the horse race results in the 2022 midterms, he finds that they have almost nothing to do with each other. And this is a long standing problem. My only point is, Paul, when you assert that what Americans really care about is the economy, you could be right. I'm not so sure that you are. I'm not so sure that is true. And I think that there is a, a, a much greater degree of humility that we all need to have about how much we really know. I think it's likely true that Americans care a lot about the economy, but what aspect of it? In expressed in what way? There's the way that pollsters, and as Alicia would put it, eggheads like us would talk about the economy. And there's the way that real human beings think about and talk about the economy. And those two are often not connected. And the way that pollsters ask about it doesn't really connect to the way people think about it. And so what we get is this very jumbled set of results that are probably generally indicative of something, but that we really should not be betting the house on. And you, Paul, you can attest to this. You have, as a candidate, to run your campaign based on polling that says, oh, voters really care about this issue. This issue really resonates. And, you know, I, I mean, it's better than nothing, but I mean, how much did you trust it as a candidate? How much did you really think it was reflecting what people actually not only believe, but what would actually motivate them to vote one way or the other? And I, I never felt that it was all that scientific. Let's take a break. We'll be right back. Yeah, when I, when I ran for the U.S. Senate, uh, what my pollsters told me was there was no issue on which you can win. You have nothing to run on. And oh, by the way, healthcare you're so far underwater, you might as well cut your throat now and, and leave. So, what, you know, so I kept a smile on Also my Donald Trump's but, advice yeah, for Mike Pence. Yeah, right. Cut your throat <laughs> and leave. But look, I mean, the polling I'm talking about, I think, reflects a general sense that Democrats are divided about the Israel-Hamas war, that that doesn't help Biden, that young people are more concerned about the U.S. support for Israel because they have been indoctrinated to be pro-Palestinian. And look, war is hell. The whole thing is tragic. Too many people have died. And that's the way that's and there's nothing good about it. That's the way that war goes. But young voters are less supportive of the Netanyahu right-wing approach that has characterized uh, what Israel has done. And they, and, and at least what the television superficial polling is telling us is that 
Biden's a little, because of the split in, uh, among Democrats, principally about foreign policy, but also disaffection uh, with the price of eggs, even though they're not that bad at this point. Biden is underwater to Trump generally. And that, however, when a generic Democrat versus Trump is asked, the generic Democrat wins for president. So, so that gives me some hope that whatever the truth of all this is, as the year goes on, those voters are going to find no home except with Democrats, and they will grudgingly come back to the elder statesman of the Democratic Party, who has the wisdom and gravitas to lead the country at age 81. You know, here's what I hope. I think this opens a bigger picture when we're talking about young people. I hope we've learned that the last three decades of whitewashing education for young people was an abject failure. We spent three decades refusing to allow young people to see the horrors of war, imagery that might upset them, allowing parents to come and be like, that offends me and it offends my child. They can't see that. And now we have a generation that has never seen anything ugly. And so what do they do? Blame the good guy for offending the bad guy because we've never let them see anything ugly. And here's the reality. Hamas is a better propagandist than Israel. And they're winning that propaganda machine. They're winning that argument because we have never taught these young people the horrors of war and what people went through to give them their freedoms here and around the world. Because it's too ugly. It's too mean. It's too unnice. We have to, everything's got to have a balance. Everything's got to have two sides. Everything is fair. No, everything doesn't have to have two sides. Everything doesn't have to have a balance. There aren't two sides to every story. I don't have to teach the positive side of the Holocaust from Hitler's perspective that doesn't exist and we educated children to believe that it does and now they're taking the Hamas side you can say Palestinian side it's not the Palestinian side the Palestinian people for the most part are innocent but Hamas is their government and it is their side and they're taking this because they have been taught to believe the opposite of reality and I think to take it full circle, your point also applies to where we started the conversation, which is around Donald Trump. And there has been a deliberate and a pretty pervasive attempt to sanitize Donald Trump and to treat this political moment as another horse race story, another, oh, that zany Trump, he's at it again. And, you know, how will this affect his standing against how will the fact that he called his political opponents vermin who should be eradicated, how will that affect his standing with swing suburban moms age 18 to 34? Who gives a shit, right? He's a violent fascist. Oh, man, now I have to call out this episode. Hey, young women, explicit. 18 to 25 years old, if you ever get famous one day, Donald Trump thinks people like he and other brethren can simply grab you in your private parts because that's his right. Where's your Me Too movement now? I, I think that and. The fact that he's taken a full fascist turn, saying the quiet part out loud. And again, we, Paul, we talked about this last week. I care a little bit less about the incitement and about the rhetoric and the bluster. I care more about the very real plans that have been put into place by hundreds of Trump operatives working together, a full fascist takeover of the federal government, drumming tens of thousands of people out of the government who are nonpartisan employees, who get you your veterans benefits, who get you your social security, putting in Trump loyalists to put in place the most vile, extreme right-wing policies that they can, 
and to basically give every American a loyalty test to Donald Trump alone. If the guy ever dies, I don't know what the hell they're going to do. They're going to have to find a new dear leader. They want to round up 11 million people and put them in camps, their words, not mine, before deporting them. I, I, I almost want to say good luck on that enterprise, but I can't. That's really the point is that we tend we're not to shocked treat, anymore is the right. biggest problem. We And we tend to treat these things lightly because, you know, it's a defense mechanism and because we're so unused to having to talk in such stark terms and the media is aiding and abetting the entire enterprise by sanitizing it. Let me just bring one more thing full circle because we talked a little bit about tech at the top of the show. And as we wind up, I want to get back there because the big story that dominated the weekend was open AI. They run chat GPT. They got rid of their CEO. It's a very weird thing. He went to work for Microsoft on the show last week. We had the head of a an advocacy group. They're a left-leaning pro-tech advocacy group. That's not the most usual combination these days. They're called Chamber of Progress. The guy is Adam Kavak. He's an interesting guy talking about the dangers of tech and especially the intersection of tech and politics. And, you know, we talked a little bit about the fact that Facebook has decided to, or Meta has decided to, allow election denialism and charges of vote rigging back onto the platform in 2024. You can't undermine confidence in the 2024 election, but you can go full on conspiracy theorist about 2020. You can do all of the Trump stuff. They're just letting it back on. Elon Musk had a full anti, he endorsed an anti-Semitic screed. I'm not throwing around the term anti-Semitic here. I mean, I'm not going to repeat it here. You can Google it. You can look it up. It's been all over the newspapers. Elon Musk endorsed a full-on attack on Jews, and he runs the most politically relevant platform, social media platform out there. And so, you know, I, I mean, this is kind of where we're at. It's not just the media allowing the sanitization of this full turn to fascism from Trump and, I hate to say it, Alicia, his willing co-conspirators in the Republican Party, but you've got social media backsliding back to that same point. We haven't learned any lessons about it, and no one's willing to speak plainly about it. That turned into a little bit of a rant. I'm sorry, but... I, I fully agree with what you're saying. The social media thing is really difficult for me because these are private businesses, private enterprises. And there's a part of me that says they can do whatever they want, which is why I engage very rarely on social media anymore these days. And I believe that's true. And that's foundational. And it has to be true that private enterprises have to be able to have the right to free speech and do as they wish. My concern is more us, we the people who are willingly and ignorantly allowing ourselves to believe things that aren't true, that we can find with our own fingertips aren't true. And I'm less apt to blame Elon Musk. I'm not talking about the anti-Semitic trope he did. I'm talking about just overall Twitter regulation or X regulation or Mark Zuckerberg for what they allow and don't allow. Then I am concerned about what we allow ourselves individually to accept, believe, and share. That's my bigger concern. Abraham Lincoln said the purpose of government is essentially to do what the free markets cannot do so well for themselves. And we are in a situation now with the rise of uh, tech giants controlling aspects of our political dialogue, our, very, our lives, our attachments 
to screen life. We're in a brave new world that uh, humans uh, may adapt to in a hundred years, but certainly haven't evolved to adapt to now. So, you know, a question is, what's the role, what's the role of government in regulating these tech giants and what they promote? If they, if you let them go unfettered, we're going to see in 2024 um, what we saw previously. The idea that, that Facebook is now going to allow people to spew disinformation about uh, the prior elections and, and let people claim it was stolen is pretty chilling, given the power that those tech giants have in our lives and, frankly, the relative ignorance of the American populace who don't pay attention to much but the very superficial stuff they, they may see without exploring it. So, Alicia, you're absolutely right. Is it up to the people? Yes. But I'm, I guess I'm a firm believer, and I know this is generally contrary to a, 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 a traditional Republican position, that this is, these are areas where government needs to step in. Because if the free market is out of control and going to cause great damage to the country, then we, the people, are represented by a government which needs to step in on our behalf. I think we're going to have to leave it there on this platform. Happy Maybe Thanksgiving, everyone. Yeah, happy Thanksgiving. Happy. All right. For Paul and Alicia, I'm Matt. We will see you next time.